That's my wife, y'all. I said this in first service, but this almost didn't happen. We, uh, we started showing our interest in each other, and then once she found out that I felt called to ministry, that girl ran so fast. Y'all ever seen the movie Runaway Bride? She was the runaway friend. She was like, we're not even going to go to girlfriend. We're not even going to get engaged. We're not going to get married because I do not want anything to do with that. And here we are, 20 years later, ministering together faithfully. You know, a week after we got married, the Lord showed up to her. He actually showed up to both of us. We were in a worship service, Victory Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hillsong was there. Darlene Check was leading worship. And I felt the Lord drop this in my spirit. He says, I'm calling you guys to work together. Christy had two lucrative job opportunities. She had just graduated. She graduated in May. We got married in August. And then she was courting these two large organizations. One was large. One was ORU. Not yet. (laughs) And the Lord spoke to me. I felt like the Lord said, son, I'm, I'm calling you guys to work and to minister together in vocational ministry. And I said, well, Lord, we've only been married a week, so I'm going to need you to tell her that. (laughs) I don't know if I have that kind of relational capital yet, the covenant capital. And sure enough, we were driving home on the Broken Arrow Expressway, and she leans over. We're about 10 minutes into the drive home, and she says, I felt like the Lord spoke to me. I said, really? What did he say? She said, I feel like we're supposed to work together. And I was like, And that came with a lot of sacrifice, that came with a lot of hard, hard choices in the earlier years of our life, it's been tested numerous ways, but I am so glad that you and I have been in the yoke of ministry together, babe, all this time, love you and appreciate you, so excited for what the Lord's doing in your life and in your ministry at Global, it's just, it's just beautiful and we just love it when you're able to minister here in the house. Friends, if you're here with us today for the first time, I want to welcome you to the 11 a.m. service at Midtown, God bless you, God bless you, man. The Lord is smiling on you today. I feel like the Lord is just smiling on all of you who are sitting in the room right now. And you need to know that. You need to feel that. You need to know the Lord is not angry at you. He doesn't have his arms folded. He's not waiting for you to get your life together or get your stuff together. The Lord is at work in your life. You may be coming in here skeptical. You might be coming in here tired and frayed and frustrated and disappointed and disillusioned. And the Lord is big enough for all of that. And he is with you, and he is present to you, and he loves you. And I'm just so delighted to have the opportunity to meet you today after service, as as well as I'm delighted to have the opportunity to preach the word to you. So let's just jump right in, shall we? Can we get get into the word today? We are on the second week of a series on the Holy Spirit. So for those of you who might be new to the idea of church or to, uh, to church itself, we have actually been on a series now for about... 15 weeks, right? Beginning of January, we started talking about who is God. God has been misrepresented, I believe, over the centuries, and he's been misrepresented today by well-meaning people, I think, but we're broken people. We're people that are riddled with our own humanity, our own sin struggles, our own pet peeves. Sometimes we get things wrong and we jack up the whole operation. And then sadly, God's name is attached to all of that. And then we have people going, well, if that's what God is about, I'm really not interested. So we've been spending some time slowly talking about who is God as God defines himself as God in the nature and role of a father. Then we spent two, uh, seven weeks talking about Jesus, 
Who is Jesus? That led us right up to Easter Sunday. And today, we're talking about who the Holy Spirit is. He's the third member of the Trinity. I want you to think about this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been operating in perfect unity for all of eternity. Perfect unity. Now listen, on my best week, on my very best week, I mean, it's a miracle if I don't show my, my selfishness, if I don't get irritated, if I don't do something to mess up the dynamic, beautiful equilibrium in the Duncan household on my best week. We are talking about for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been dwelling together, existing together in absolute, perfect, beautiful, uninterrupted unity and harmony. That's got to tell you something about the character and the nature of the Godhead. It's amazing. So friends, I'm going to, I'm going to pray and I feel pray, uh, led to pray into what Sidron has been leaning into this morning. I'm telling you, if we'll get a revelation of what Sidron was bringing to us about being so transformed that something actually becomes a deep part of our character that comes out in every situation and in every circumstance of life. See, when you're a prayer, you don't just pray when the unction's on you. You don't just pray when you feel the movement of the Spirit at church. You pray in all seasons and at all times. You pray when things are good. You pray when things are awful because you are a person of prayer. I love this. When you're a giver, right? You don't give just when you're in abundance. You give even when you have a little. Jesus tells us there was a lady, she only had two little coins, but because she was a giver, she gave everything that she had. And I found myself so drawn. I found myself as you went back into worship, I found myself crying out and saying, God, change me again. Transform me. Make me into a worshiper. I want to be, I, there was times and seasons in my life when I could, I could say, you a worshiper right there, Jay Duncan. But I don't know, I feel like I've lost some of that. There were times and seasons in my life when I was a prayer and I lost some of that. And I found myself right here crying out and saying, God, make me a prayer again. Make me a worshiper. Make me a praiser. Make me a giver. So can you, can you just pray with me today and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to lean in to his work on your life? Father, today, as we come here, we just declare right now that this is not an ordinary day. I said it's not an ordinary day. It's not a common day. It's a day where we have set apart, we have sanctified and set this day apart, and we've said this day belongs to you. This day has been set apart for God activity. It's a day where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and ministering to us in a very peculiar way, in a unique way. You're present today, and Holy Spirit, I'm asking, change us, speak to us. Motivate us, inspire us, convict us, comfort us, strengthen us, God. Encourage us. Holy Spirit, breathe on us afresh and anew. Hover over us afresh and anew. Cause God ideas to explode inside of us. Let us hear the invitation of God to draw near again. Father, I pray this today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Guys, I want to talk about... Today, how the Holy Spirit is involved in salvation, how the Holy Spirit is at work in the entire salvation process. And I've been thinking about this since I preached this in the first service, and I'm going to try to click this in with a little bit more clarity because I've been thinking about how the Holy Spirit has been involved before we said yes, 
the Holy Spirit has been involved in us saying yes to God. We can call that moment salvation. We might be able to call that moment conversion, depending on how we define these terms. But then we can also see how the Holy Spirit has been involved in our life, not just before salvation, not just in the salvation moment, but the Holy Spirit's been involved in every aspect of our salvation journey since we said yes to Jesus. Are you seeing this today? Yes. I think, I think a great way to explain this perhaps is in the relational journey that I had with my wife. So I met my wife when I was a junior at college. We met in, let's see, 95, 96, 97. And the first day that I saw her, in our university structure, the way the dorms were laid out, there were all these male dorms and they had counterpart female dorms. And so if you were living in dorm A on the male side on the third floor, then dorm A on the female side on the third floor, we called those brother wings and sister wings. And we kind of set that up to just kind of help develop you know, good, healthy social interactions and social relationships. And there was a particular night where the brother wing was having an ice cream social with the sister wing. And I saw this half Costa Rican, half Alabama girl, Alabamian girl across the room. And I was like, I was just struck. It's like, I got to meet this girl. I've got to meet her. I got to know her. And so I pulled her away from the rest of the crowd because, you know, there are certain conversations you can't have when other guys are around. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You got you to gotta get the honey alone. I said, hey, hey, cutie, I need, I need to come talk with you over here. I'll never forget that moment. We began kind of dialoguing and interviewing one another and trying to get into each other's lives. And she said, well, what kind of music do you like? And I said, well, you know. Snoop and Dre and Naughty by Nature, Tribe Called Quest, Tupac, Lords of the Underground. She's like, what are you talking about? I mean, you just like, you just saw this whimsical look on her face like, and I was like, she is not tracking with any of this. It's like, well, tell me what kind of music you like. And she said, Pearl Jam and Nirvana. And she's like, basically, if it's grunge, I love it. And I was like, this was all of the music I hated in high school. Like, I just despised this music. And then we began talking about ambitions, and we began talking about dreams and future desires. And, and she told me she wanted to get a big tattoo of the islands and the sun and whales jumping around. And no, not all that. <laughs> She's like, like, you were embellishing this story. I looked at her, I was like, girlfriend, we are not compatible at all. Two years later, two years later, we caught eyes again. We were both involved in the missions department. She was a team leader to the Philippines, and I was the regional coordinator of all the teams that were going out to the nations of Asia. I had eight teams underneath my leadership, and Christy was leading one of those teams. And we would start off the year going to a retreat where we would train our team leaders so they'd be ready to lead their missions teams. It was a nine-month-long process. And I'll never forget, man, we're in Jet Chapel at Camp Takatoka out there. It's hot. It's muggy. It's sweaty. But I look over there, man, I see this beautiful girl crying out to the Lord, interceding for the nations, pouring her spirit out, loving on God. And, man, I saw, I was like, do I... Doesn't matter if she likes Nirvana, doesn't matter if she likes Pro Jam, she can get all the tattoos she wants, Lord, but man, I'm seeing something else on this girl's life, and my eyes were open to her again. She and I began talking. 
We were in that liminal space of, you know, do you like me? Do I like you? I don't know, but let's just start hanging out together. I'll never forget, we were driving to Walmart one night. We had to go pick up something, and she just turned, and she, gets, she said, so when did all this start, all of this? I was like, what, did, what do you mean, all of this? She's like, you know, when did you start liking me? And I, you know, and I had to play it smooth, and I just said, girl, I started liking you the first moment I met you. Uh! But then... But then we entered into some real difficult territory. Our missions director said, hey, I'm going to ask that you guys, that you not express interest in each other. I'm going to ask that you not tell her that you like her. I'm going to ask that you guys not date. And I'm thinking to myself, bro, you, you a little too late, man. <laughs> that light switch was flipped on a long time ago, man. And so once she found this out, she was like, what do I do with this? How do I navigate this territory of liking this man, but also being a little nervous? And I know he's called to ministry. I'm not sure if I'm called to that. And our missions director is saying that we can't date. So she just cut it off. Boom. She was like, nope, we're not doing this anymore. And for six months, we didn't talk at all. Six months. Thank you. Thank you. That, 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 that right there, that was, that was the response that I wanted right there. Six months, man. I came back. She went on a one-month trip. I, came on, I went on a two-month trip, and I came back. And long story short, she did come to a place of revelation, and she said, you know, I'd like to see if we can maybe start talking about this again. And so we started dating in August of 2000. We got engaged in February of 2001. We got married in August of 2001. So if you were to ask me, like, when did the relationship start? When did feelings and desire and attraction and interest, like, when did all that start? When did you know? When did you know that this was the one? I can't really point to an exact moment when I could say, like, this is when I know. I can tell you this, though, that there was a moment when I pledged my life to her in February, and I said, will you marry me? And that became a defining moment in our journey. And then six months later, when I stood across from her and I said, yes, I promise to be your husband and to be faithful to you and to love you in sickness and health, that was a defining moment in our relationship. But if you were to zoom out and you were to say, okay, like, tell us when it actually happened that you knew, I can't tell you that. I can tell you when we met. I can tell you that there were things that were happening inside of me after we met. I can tell you that I looked across the room and I saw her in a new way that I hadn't known her before, and that was two years later. I can tell you that she walked away for six months, and in that time, I had to wrestle with whether or not I was going to stay in this or not. I had to let that desire die. So if you were to ask me, like, when did you know that you were all in with this woman? I can't tell you when that happened, but there was a conversion moment when I said, I'm willing now to go all in with you. And I think that's kind of how it's like with God. Now, walk with me here. I think God is involved in our lives from the very moment we're born. And in fact, if I take scripture literally, which I do, I, I think that God was actually involved in your salvation process while you were still in your mother's womb. I think he was involved in writing your story and writing your script and releasing prophetic words over your life. Scripture tells us, yet while I was still in my mother's womb, the, 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 the prophet said that God began speaking over him. You're going to be a prophet to the nations. Yes. God has been involved in every area and every aspect of your life. 
And then some of you can probably, if I were to ask you, can you tell me the day or the time or the moment or the place when you said yes to God? Some of you can point to that moment. How many of you in this room, if I were to say, tell me your conversion moment? How many of you could raise your hand right now? Right now. That's amazing. See, I can't tell you my conversion moment. My mom grew up a Buddhist. She gave her life to the Lord when she was pregnant with me. My dad gave his life to the Lord when I was in the fifth grade. Somewhere around the fourth grade, my mom started making me read the scriptures. Somewhere around that time, I think I prayed the sinner's prayer about 20 times. All right, just kept praying it over and over and over again. Did it take root? Did it take? Am I saved? I'm not sure. But Jesus, forgive me of my sins and be the Lord of my life. And not really seeing transformation in my life, but I can point to a conversion moment in my life, the summer between my junior year and my senior year of high school. Now, I knew that I was saved up until this moment because I'd been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, but there was something really peculiar and unique that happened when I went down to the altar in a youth service and I said, God, my life is completely yours. Like you are definitively the Lord of my life. You're the commander of the ship. I want, I want to please you. I want the posture and the orientation of my life to be about what you want for my life. I'm not wrestling with you anymore. I'm not trying to find ways to like really live my life, but do it in, in, in the name of God. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I want to live my life in the way that you want me to live my life. Listen to this. Everett, we're going to skip over here, and I'm going to read this slide here on Stanley Grenz's definition of conversion. Then we're going to go back and look at some scriptures here. There's a theologian named Stanley Grenz, and he defines conversion as this, the life-changing encounter with the triune God. It's a moment that you can point to when you can say something happened right there. There was a definitive encounter with God that resulted in a decision that ended up in different choices that were being made in your life. It's a life-changing encounter with the triune God, which inaugurates, it's another word for saying it starts, it begins a radical break. Everybody say radical break. A radical break with our old fallen existence. So something that happened in that moment, in that Summer between my junior and senior year when I went down to an altar and I cried out to the Lord and I'd stayed there on my knees for two solid hours and felt like God was just, he was just doing work. He was doing work. He was, he was asking me for some things. He was asking me for some, some idols in my life. And he said, son, I, there's guys, there's three things that I want from you. I want you to give me your girls. I want you to give me your music and I want you to give me your basketball. And all three of those, I said, yes, without even thinking about it. Yes, Lord, they're yours and my life is yours. At that time, I was collecting vinyl records and doing house parties. And I remember I went home and I took these big crates, milk crates, with all these vinyl records, and I just I threw them away. I mean, like thousands of dollars. I'm looking back now going, oh, God, man. Because <laughs> vinyl's in now, right? I'm like, started my collection from scratch. Different genre, but it's like still, like, kind of made some money with all the records. But there was a radical break. There was a definitive decision. I made a decision in my life to walk away from the basketball team. I gave my music up, and I went on a season where I said, I'm not going to date anyone. What, what, what is that? That's counterintuitive. But it was the fruit of the mark of conversion. Something happened in that place. Now, I was saved prior. Are you, are you hearing me today? 
I can't, I can't tell you exactly when I was saved, but I knew that the Lord was at work in my life prior to that moment, but there was something radical that happened in that place, in that conversion moment. And what I want to propose to you today is that the Holy Spirit, wherever you are on the timeline or on the journey of your life with God, the Holy Spirit is involved in all of it. Yes. Yes. And my hope today is that I can, I can help you and I can show you maybe to accelerate the process and to confirm the process by teaching us that we can actually get into agreement with the promptings of the Lord in our life. All right, so let's take a look at some scriptures. We're going to look at John chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 3. The backstory here is there's a religious teacher by the name of Nicodemus who has a conversation with Jesus in the nighttime because he doesn't want any of his other fellow teachers of the law knowing that he's having this conversation with this rogue rabbi who is kind of disorienting and disrupting the entire religious system. This guy's name is Jesus. So Nicodemus asks to meet with Jesus, and he's wanting to understand, like, what are you about? What are you doing? What are you teaching? I've, I've, I've studied the Torah for years, Nicodemus could say, but you're bringing something that's so radical, so fresh, so different. There's an edge to it. There's, a, there's, there's something of the spirit that's drawing me into this, and I don't understand it. So as he's asking Jesus questions, look at what Jesus says in verse 3 of John 3. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see the kingdom of God. No one can even be remotely aware of who God is unless they are born again. Now, Nicodemus responds the only way he knows how to respond. He responds completely by the flesh, by the natural, by the physical. He says, now, hold up, hold up. Verse 4, he says, are you trying to tell me? that an old man can climb back into his mother's womb and then be born another time, he's like, Jesus, you're crazy. He's, you're, you're crazy. Notice that Jesus is talking about spiritual realities. He's using a physical metaphor to help describe a spiritual reality, and then he goes on to explain it again here in John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can even enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and born by the Spirit. Your spirit, when you are not in God, is dead because of sin. The scripture tells us that over and over and over again. Now, let me lean into this a little bit. You can go to as many church services as you want. You can, you can join every small group and table group. You can hang out at the 20s and 30s events. And I believe that particularly now, in this culture, I believe that there's a lot of people that want to belong before they choose to believe. And I validate that. And I think that that's right. And I think that in, in previous generations, that we wouldn't let people belong until they believed. That we were such sticklers. You've got to believe what we believe. And once you believe, then we're going to give you access to all the other areas of belonging. But there's been a generation that has seen so much discrepancy. They've seen so much hypocrisy that they want to know, do you really care about me? Will you really be there with me and for me when all of my life falls apart? Are you going to be consistent? Are you really going to care for who I am? Are you who you say you are before I choose to believe in everything that you're telling me that I need to believe in? See, the belief, the belief process is a journey. 
And part of that journey is inviting people into a space of belonging. You can, you can walk with us, and we want to walk with you, and we want you to see how we interact at home in our marriages when we don't have our Sunday best on. We, we, we want you to be friends with us. We want you to, to be a part of our world and our life. Play pickleball with us and see how I respond on the basketball court and know that I'm normal and I'm human. I have flaws. Like People need to belong. That being said, belonging is not a substitute for believing. What I would say to a group of people in this room who belonged for a while, I would say that there is a definitive moment when belief has to kick in. Because as Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. There is a moment in time when a decision has been made, God, forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry. I recognize I have revelation. I have understanding. My life is more in focus. It's been illuminated to me. I've been living in a way that is contrary to the way that you say that humanity should live, and it's brought about destruction and division and death in my life. Are we, are we still together? Yes. All right. So what I want you to know today is that it's impossible to know God without God. Yes. It is impossible. You can know about God. You can read stories. It's funny. When you're at Walmart or you're at King Supers, every year Time Magazine puts out this, this little article about Jesus, the historical Jesus. And you can hear stories about Jesus, and you can know things that Jesus has done. But it's impossible to know Jesus, to know him intimately, to know his heart, to know who he is, to know what he's about, to know the mystery of what he's really done for us, to know the spirit of who Jesus is without Jesus. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2.8 says it like this. It says, it is by grace that you've been saved. Do you know what that means? It means that there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do. There's nothing that you and I did do. And there's nothing that you and I ever will do that will win the favor of God. Nothing. That it is absolutely in and of ourselves impossible by our works alone to earn the favor and the grace and the kindness of God. It's impossible. We cannot know God without God. We cannot understand God without God. We can't be in relationship with God without God. We can't love God without God. It is by grace you've been saved. Through faith. What is faith? Faith is that moment of believing. Faith is that moment where we choose to say this This feels and it sounds crazy, but God, I'm crazy enough to believe that you know me, you created me, you designed me, you loved me, you gave your own son to die for me. And it's, this, is, this is crazy, but God, I believe that in so doing that you've restored my relationship back with you. I believe that you have a way that you want me to live my life. I believe that you can actually give your spirit to me. I believe that. And in believing that, through that faith, it appropriates that grace. It, it takes what's been made available and it receives it. Yeah. Friends, the promises and the reality of God, they're not automatic. In other words, just because they're available to you, it does not necessarily mean that you're possessing what's available. That you're receiving what's available that you're taking, that you're taking ownership of what's available to you. Like today, if I were to 
hand my iPad out to somebody. And I would say, would anybody like an iPad? It's a little used, but it's still functional. And it gives you access to everything that an iPad gives you access to. You can search the internet. You can read Kindle books. You can play games if you're into that kind of thing. But, you know, how many of you would like an iPad? And you could say, oh, I would like that iPad. Yeah, thank you, Nahum. He's raising his hand. He would like that iPad. And then, and then if service ends and Nahum walks out of this door and the iPad is still here, guess what he did? He acknowledged that there was a gift that was available to him, but he didn't come forward and receive the gift that was offered to him. Are you, are you seeing this? You, you have to apprehend. You have to lay a hold of the gift that's been available to you. So salvation has been made available to us by the benevolent grace of God, but it's apprehended by faith. I believe that you have forgiven me. I believe that you've saved me. I believe that you've invited me back into your family. And so now I lay a hold of that. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not by works. It's not by works. In other words, there is no good thing that you can do that can earn the salvific grace of God in your life. It can only be humbly and graciously received by faith. And this is happening, as the scripture says, so that none of us can boast in what we have in God. Let's take a look at that next slide there, Everett. Conversion then, conversion, that definitive moment happens when we repent. When we repent. So there's this story in the book of Acts. Peter stands up. The baptism of the Holy Spirit comes out on the church. They're praying in other tongues. There's a group of people that are outside and they think they're all drunk and crazy. Peter stands up and he announces to them, we're not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. This is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And he begins at that moment to preach the gospel, to reveal to them who God is, who Jesus is, what God has done in Jesus and what is available to everyone. And then they say, well, what do we do with this? And he says, it's simple, repent, turn, think differently about God, about yourself, about your actions, about your decisions, about your sin. Think differently, feel differently about those things, right? Repent and be baptized, undergo conversion. Conversion happens when we repent and when we respond in faith. Now, here's the difficult, here's the difficult thing about this. You and I do not have it within us to repent on our own. And you and I do not have it within us to respond by faith in and of ourselves. It is absolutely impossible for you and I to repent without God showing us that we need to repent. All right? So how do we come to the place of repentance? Well, there's four ways that the Holy Spirit is involved in this process. We're going to break this down. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. You ever seen somebody, maybe a friend of yours, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody out there, a neighbor or a stranger, and they're just, they're all in, man. They've pushed all their chips in and they're going to live the worldly life and they're going to enjoy it to the max. And they, then like, they're, they're not making any apologies for it. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's not just one person. There's multiple people that they're engaged with. Y'all know what I'm talking, you know what I'm saying, right? Okay. They have no problem lying, cheating, stealing, right? And and there's no apologies for that. So, so what's happening here? How do we get to the place where we even remotely are able to recognize that what we're doing is not honoring God? And even if we did know that it was honoring God, how do we get to the place where we would even care? It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. 
It's the Holy Spirit who begins to nudge and prompt and sow the idea into us. Hey, I think you're created for more than this. Hey, I want you to start thinking about this. Like if you keep making these choices, it's going to lead you into some destructive paths. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll watch a movie and they'll see themselves in that movie, right? And they go, oh man, I wonder if that could be, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to people in all kinds of ways. Like we've got we've to allow room for the Holy Spirit to be more creative in the way that he interacts with people than I think that we, than, than we imagine. Right, the Holy Spirit can show up to people in their dreams. He can wake them up out of their sleep. The Holy Spirit can use neighbors and strangers. The Holy Spirit can use magazine articles. He can use whatever he needs to use at his disposal. The Holy Spirit can meet people while they're high. He'll meet them right there. The Holy Spirit can meet people in their worst acid or mushroom trip and they, it would freak them out. And the Holy Spirit would say, you see this? This is a moment right now. Pay attention. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit can do that. Unwanted pregnancy and the Holy Spirit can say, now, now's the time. Let's get this together. The Holy Spirit is the one who has been sent to convict us of sin. John chapter 16, verse 8, look at this. Spirit, the, the scripture says that when he comes... He will prove the world to be in the wrong. Other translations say very simply, he will convict the world. He will convict the world. You know what conviction is? Conviction is like walking along and cutting your foot on a piece of glass. And it's the pain that happens from that experience to go, hey, pay attention. Pay attention. Like if you're walking along, you want to be sensitive enough to know, you want your nerve endings to be sensitive enough to know that you just sliced your foot open. Because now you know you need to do something about it. And if you didn't have conviction, then you would just bleed out. Are you hearing me today? And what you need to understand is that the Holy Spirit's conviction is different from the enemy's condemnation. See, the Holy Spirit operates in conviction. And the, and the enemy... The accuser of your life operates in condemnation. Now, here's the difference. The difference is in your identity, and it's in your future. So when the enemy speaks to you, it sounds like this. I can't believe you did that. You're always going to be like that. Your mom, you grew up, and your mom told you you'll be just like your dad, and look, it's happening right now, and you'll always be like this. Listen to that. You know what that is? That's condemnation. It's like when you go to a building, and the building has been deemed condemned, it speaks to the building's identity. You have now been marked and labeled as no longer functional, useful, or purposeful. And we have put a, a label on you that says you are now destined to no longer be functional or to be fruitful. And you can no longer be inhabited. You're condemned. And so that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to give you ideas about your life that say, for the rest of my days, I am no longer functional or fruitful. This is who I will always be. That's condemnation. And it is straight from the devil. And it is the language of hell. And the scripture tells us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when the Holy Spirit comes along and you fill that prick, here's what the Holy Spirit's saying. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a daughter. This doesn't line up with who you are. You can change this. You know better. I'm going to help you know better. Draw into me. We can redeem this. There's more for you. The end of the story hasn't been written yet. 
Are you hearing me today? That's conviction. Conviction is always given out of love because of who you're called to be. Conviction will speak to your identity because of your identity, to remind you of your identity, to call you into the fulfillment of your identity. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Look with me right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. Very, very powerful scripture here. There's a lot of freaky stuff happening in the church at Corinth. I mean, just shady. I mean, we got, we got like son-in-laws that are sleeping with their mother-in-laws, and it's just like all kinds of nutty stuff is going on. And Paul writes a letter in 1 Corinthians, and he rebukes them. He corrects them. And he says, guys, listen, this is not right. This is not right for the people of God. Like, listen, there are standards for the people of God. And he does this in love, but it's also firm and it's also clear. And then he writes them another letter. This is why it's called 2 Corinthians. And then he says to them, he says, listen, if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. This is like such a parent move right now. He's like, I don't regret it. And then he goes, okay, maybe I did regret it a little bit. But I, 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 I only regretted it for a little bit. I mean, you, do you see the humanity of Paul wrestling through this? And this is what Paul is trying to communicate. I don't take joy in knowing that what I brought to you hurt you. I don't take joy in that. I'm not, I don't get like some sick, twisted sense of delight knowing that when I brought correction to you, it actually hurt, it hurt you. But... I see that my letter hurts you, but it only hurt for a little while. Look at verse 9. It says, yet now I'm happy. And I'm happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Like there is a sorrow that comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God has designed and that he intends for our life. You became sorrowful as God intended, and you were not harmed by us in any way. And here's the verse. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to lock in on this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads us to salvation. Worldly sorrow brings death. What is worldly sorrow? Let's stop here for a second. What is worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is, getting, is being sorry that you got caught. Worldly sorrow is being sorry because now you can't do what you were able to do before. Worldly sorrow is you're sorry because you don't like the consequences of the decisions that you make. Worldly sorrow is not understanding why the law was put in the first place. Worldly sorrow is simply saying, I'm, I'm agitated and I'm wounded and I'm frustrated with the fact that I'm no longer able to live my life the way that I wanted to live it. But I know that if I do, there's going to be worse consequences ahead of me. That's worldly sorrow. I mean, just to put this in like deep perspective, I use the example in the first service that God forbid if there were anything that happened between Christy and I and I were unfaithful. And I came back and I saw that it hurt her. But really what I'm, what I'm sorry about is the fact that I don't, long, I don't get to preach anymore. Like I'm stripped of my pastoral credentials. And now, and now, like the dynamics of the relationship are awkward and funky. Like, are you really sorry? 
Are you really sorry before God? Are you really sorry of what you've put inside now, the seed of mistrust and brokenness, and now all of the questions and suspicions that you've released inside your wife's heart and inside of your children's lives? Are you thinking about the costs, the, the, the consequences of your decisions? Like, that's a godly sorrow. Another biblical figure we can utilize here is David, because David, in fact, did this. David committed adultery, right? And then when he writes his prayer of repentance to God in Psalm 51. Do you know who he's repenting to? He's repenting to God. And he says this, and he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, godly sorrow brings us into the logic of the law. Godly sorrow brings us into the purpose of truth. Godly sorrow brings us into an understanding. This is how you're violating my heart. It brings us deeper into the heart and the nature of God. It brings us beyond just the consequences of how that sin is affecting our life personally. Friends, this is godly sorrow. But here's another way that we can see whether or not godly sorrow is at work. Godly sorrow produces something inside of us. Look right here at the next verse in verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. It's amazing to me, and there's actually medical studies that, are, that will document all of this where a man or a woman can go to the doctor and they'll say, listen, unless you make radical changes in your physical lifestyle, you can't eat what you used to eat. You got to cut out the saturated fats. You got to cut out the triglycerides. You got to cut out the sugars or or you literally have an expiration date on your life. You got to start moving more. You got to be more active. You got to drink more water. It's amazing that people will look at their fatality in the eyes and they will still, they will know the change they need to make, and they will still live the way that they were living prior. That's not godly sorrow. Are you hearing me today? Because a godly sorrow will produce something inside of you. It will produce a Holy Spirit-empowered earnestness, a diligence, a devotion, a conviction. See what this godly sorrow has produced What earnestness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What alarm. Listen to this language, friends. Godly sorrow builds inside of us conviction. Godly sorrow doesn't say, let me just see how far I can get away with this. Godly sorrow isn't saying, well, you know, I'm I'm not really cheating, but we're just kind of hanging out and we're just texting a bunch. No, godly sorrow is saying, let's get as far away from that as possible. Well, it's not really lying. Listen, if you've got to work through all of the justifications in your mind to clear yourself, it's not godly sorrow. It's still, it's still you living life the way that you want to live your own life. Godly sorrow will produce inside of you an alarm. It will produce inside of you a fear of the Lord. It will produce inside of you, God, I want to get as far away from that as possible. I want nothing to do with this in my life. And over the course of the past few decades, sadly, we've seen pastors who have made poor choices. And we've seen pastors lose everything. Everything. And what always alarms me, because listen, when I hear that, listen, there's nothing inside of me. There's nothing inside of me that says, see, I told you so. Everything inside of me. When I hear a pastor fall, grieves. I grieve for his or her life. I grieve for their spouse, for their children, for their staff, for the people in their congregation, for what this does in the larger body of Christ. I grieve and I pray immediately for them. 
But I'll tell you this, what always alarms me more than even the fall itself is how they respond to correction and the process of restoration. And when I hear that a pa- when a pastor kind of shortcuts the process and bypasses the process, oh, I've just gone through two months of counseling and I think that'll be fine. Friends, that alarms me. Because godly sorrow takes time and godly sorrow works it well, it's itself through until it produces a changed life. Now, let me say it like this. You and I, without the Holy Spirit, all we know is worldly sorrow. That's all we know. All we know is, is manipulation. All we know is shadow self. All we know is deception. That's all we know. We need the Holy Spirit to move us into a place where the conviction of God comes on us that produces a godly sorrow in our lives. God, I dread the fact that I hurt you. God, I dread the fact that I'm not honoring you. God, I dread the fact that I'm not living up to my potential. God, I dread the fact that I'm hurting the people around me. God, I dread, I hate this in my life. God, work this out of me. Heal me, change me, deliver me, save me. Holy Spirit, I'm crying out for grace. That's godly sorrow at work in our lives. Second area where we see the Holy Spirit at work in the salvation process is not just godly sorrow, but then God calls us to respond. He doesn't just convict us and leave us there. He he convicts us and then he calls us. He says, okay, come on. Yeah, the foot's bleeding. Let's Let's go bandage that up. Let's not walk here again. Let's walk on a different path. He convicts us and then he calls us to respond. The scripture here is 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 9, 2 Timothy 1, 9, Paul says that God has saved us and he has called us to a holy life. In other words, we could say the Holy Spirit has convicted us. The Holy Spirit is made aware to us. He has illumined to our, our mind and our will that what you're doing is not in agreement or alignment with the will of God for your life. And when that moment comes, he then calls us. Come on, let's go a different way. Let's make different decisions. Let's go about this Differently, And we need the Holy Spirit to call us out of our life of sin. The third way that we see the Holy Spirit at work is he convicts us, he calls us, and then he illuminates the word to us. In other words, he makes us to understand truth. He makes us to understand truth. The mind will justify what the heart has chosen. Most philosophies that are anti-God, that are secular in nature, were actually philosophies created by brilliant people who first made a choice in their heart to be against God. And then they reasoned the way through to justify what their heart had already chosen. Here's the best way that I've seen this play out after 20 years of ministry and working primarily with youth and young adults. You ever seen somebody date somebody and you're like, "Mm, I don't really feel like that's right. And then the whole community is like, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. And then all you hear is you hear all these justifying, y'all don't know him like I know him. But y'all, y'all don't understand. I'm working on his salvation. I'm praying for him. God gave me a promise. I said, I know him like you don't know him. Oh, you're, you're just jealous. I mean, like whenever you start having to justify, realize that the mind justifies what the heart has chosen. And the best thing that we can do right there is say, Holy Spirit, show me where I have been self-deceived. 
Show me where I have built worldviews and mindsets and systems of belief and thinking that have actually been designed to prop up a heart choice that I've already made in the depths of my being. We need the Holy Spirit, friends. We need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who will eliminate truth. You don't even know what your own motives are. There'll be times when I tell God, I'm like, I think that this is the right motive, but I need you to help me discern my motives. I can't even worship God purely without God. I can't even give to God without hoping that I strike the lottery if I give to God. Why? Because my motives are so absorbed in my own sinful, selfish humanity. Are you hearing me today? Flesh this out in every arena of your life, friend. You don't, you don't even know how to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Look right here at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, if it's hidden, if it's covered, if it's blinding someone's heart and mind, it's, it's veiled to those who are outside of God. Like, this is what we need to understand. Your friend, your coworker, spouse, neighbor, child, if they're resistant to God, they're blinded in the belief system of their mind. They're blinded. What are they blinded by? You pick. It is anything. They're blinded by their own family of origin, by their own family systems. They're blinded by religion, by the abuse of religion. They're blinded by the fact that they got hurt by a best friend who happened to be a Christian, and now they've made belief systems about that. They're blinded by Marxism. They're blinded by whatever it is, belief systems that enter in that actually blind our ability to see what is true and real and right and good and lovely. This is the work of the enemy, to blind our, our hearts. So without the Holy Spirit, we're hopeless because we can't come to illumination without the Holy Spirit. We can't even recognize that we're deceived without the Holy Spirit. You know, the fact, the very definition of being deceived is that you're deceived. You don't know it. For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Verse four, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Look at verse six. Here's the promise. Verse six, but God who said, ah, don't you just love the scriptures that say, but God, but God who said, because this can feel hopeless, right? Moms and dads are crying out for your sons and daughters and you're like, God, why, 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 why can't they see? Because their minds are blinded. We can be blinded by a substance. We can be blinded by a lifestyle, by an illicit relationship, by pleasure, by pain. We can be blinded, but the, but the God who said, let Light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. I am here to announce today that God can shine his light by the power of his Holy Spirit in whatever darkness your children are in. In whatever darkness your spouse is in. In whatever darkness your parents are in. In whatever darkness your neighbor is in. That coworker that you're crying out for. God is the one who said, let light shine out of darkness. Keep praying, keep hoping, keep believing, keep sowing, keep building relationship, keep extending a hand of hospitality. Keep believing that God is going to break in through that darkness. Jonathan, come on up, man. Oh, Holy Spirit, can you stand with me this morning? Holy Spirit, we are so desperate for you. Holy Spirit, I want to thank you right now. 
I want to thank you that you pulled my life out of a pit of darkness, that you set my foot upon a rock when all I was doing is walking on on unstable ground. I want to thank you for putting a new song in my mouth, changing the way that I think, illuminating the error of my ways to me. Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for putting a love inside of me for Jesus and showing me the beauty of Jesus and showing me my own brokenness over and over again. And when I was tempted to make excuses, you would show me the the dysfunction of my own life, healing the brokenness of my story. Holy Spirit of the living God, I'm asking right now that here in this house and for those that are watching online, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us afresh and anew. Holy Spirit, that you would lead us by grace into the love of God, that you would reveal Jesus and you would reveal the Father. Holy Spirit, call us. Let us hear the voice of the Father saying, you're still mine, you're still my beloved. You've not screwed this up past the point of redemption. Let us hear the call of the Holy Spirit today, afresh and anew. God, I wanna pray all around, all around this room, be praying right now. I wanna pray for prodigals. I wanna pray for our neighbors, lost sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. God, today, we are praying that the Holy Spirit would convict of sin. We are praying that the Holy Spirit would heal, heal the broken, wounded places of their heart, places of betrayal, places where they've seen hypocrisy, places where they've seen church abuse. Oh God, heal those places and our sons and our daughters. We call them back. Let them hear the voice of God. Let them hear the loving voice of a father calling them today. We're praying today that you would remove veils and blinders from their spiritual eyes. We're praying that light would break in to the darkness of their life in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit of the living God, draw us to salvation. Convert us. Break in. Oh, break in, we pray. Holy Spirit of God. Hallelujah. Ministers of the table, ministers of prayer, you guys can come forward. I did this after we came forward in the first service, but I I, want to just seize this moment right now. If you've been a part of this community for weeks or months, or if you came today for the very first time, I believe that you're not here by accident and I want to give you an opportunity today to respond to the goodness of God. The gospel is simple, it's clear. Let me say it like this, God loves you. He always has and he always will. There's nothing that you've ever done to disqualify yourself from the love of the Father, nothing, nothing. You are not disqualified. He loves you and he longs for you and he created you out of delight and maybe you've never experienced the delight of another human being before. Maybe you've never experienced that feeling of being wanted on the team or being the one that everybody wants to be around. But in God's economy and in God's eyes, listen to me, the Father sees you as the apple of his eye. He loves you with a holy and affectionate love and it's a pure love and it's a good love. Because of our own decisions, because he gave us agency, he gave us the right to choose. All of us, all of us have chosen ourselves over God. It's just a part of our story. It's the biggest ugly blot that we have put on the beautiful canvas of the love of God that has been painted for us. And we've just taken that and we've just messed it up. And we did it, every one of us, from the very first human being that lived. We don't know how not to. We always screw the story up. And so God says, it's fine because your ability to make mistakes is not greater than my ability to make them better. Hallelujah. <laughs> listen, your ability to make mistakes is not more powerful than my ability to redeem them. Because no matter how how much you shatter the story, I'm gonna take every one of those pieces together and I'm I'm gonna 
put them together in a way that still makes your life beautiful and it still points to my goodness and my grace and my glory. So he sent Jesus. Jesus lived his life, healed the sick, fed the hungry, took care of those who were socially outcast, and he laid down his life. He was an innocent man, and he was murdered unjustly. He was lynched. He was hung upon a tree brutally, mercilessly, but he did it in the mercy of God to save us. So every one of our decisions that has gone against God, it was all placed on him. He took the punishment. He took sin itself. The very substance of sin, he said, bring it on. And he he absorbed it. And then he died. And when he died, he broke the power of sin. He killed sin in himself. But that's not the end of the story. We find out that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit we've been speaking on today, resurrected Jesus from the dead to say not only did you die with sin, but you are actually more powerful than sin because life is always more powerful than death. And light will not be overcome by darkness. And freedom is greater than your bondage. And this is all he says. He says, this is available to you. Belonging and acceptance and life and purpose and design and healing, it's available to you. And relationship with God, it's available to you. And power to live a life of freedom, it's available to you. All you have to do is say yes being held out for you. All you got to do is come and say, I want that. And, I, and I'm just crazy enough to believe that what you're saying is true and I choose to receive it. So all across this room, friends, would you just lift out your hands like this today and just say, yes, God. I receive. I receive your forgiveness and I receive your salvation and I receive your Holy Spirit. Give me the power to respond to the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that for somebody today, that today would be that defining day, that conversion day, where you look back and you would say, what is today? May the 1st? You would say, May the 1st, 2022. That day marked a change in my life. That day I said yes to the Holy Spirit and no to me. I pray that for somebody today, that today is that day that defines a radical change in your life in Jesus' name. Now, friends, you can come to this table, every one of you. And we're going to remember and celebrate what Christ has done. You can exit on your left, come up and receive the body and the cup, and we'll receive this together as a family.
before I forget, these ministers of the table are also ministers of prayer. All week long and today before service, these guys have been praying for this moment. They've been praying for you. And after we end service today with a blessing, if there's any way at all that these ministers can be praying together with you to minister comfort, to encourage you in your faith, to agree with you for the presence and power of God to be available and active in your life. These guys, I'm telling you, they're the real deal. They're not just here because they have to be. They're here because they want to be, and they want to pray together with you. So if you would take this cracker in your hand, which represents to us the body of Christ himself on the night when Jesus was betrayed by sinful men into the hands of sinful, wicked men. Christ had a meal, a fellowship meal. And he said this to his followers. He says, this is my body. It's my very body. It's my life. It's the source and substance of life itself. I am the bread of life. And I am allowing my life to be broken so that your life can be whole and put back together and completely restored by the design of God. So we receive that today. Break that in your hand and let's receive the body of Christ. And then he took a cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant, a new agreement. Here's the agreement. You say yes, I'll make it all available. You say yes, I'll do all the work, right? I'm extending grace and mercy and peace to you. I'm making this available. And then he said this, you don't have to live a life of guilt and shame and fear. You're forgiven. Friends, your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. Like we should stand a little bit taller. We should lift up our head and we should know that Christ has delivered us from every sin and forgiven us from all our offenses against God. And to that, let us receive the cup today. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, can we clap our hands to the Lord today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit. And thank you for Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection, your spirit poured out upon us. We are a victorious people. Today, I want to send you out into the places that God has called you to inhabit. Your workspaces, your classroom, your military bases, vocational ministry, soccer games, baseball games, coffee shops, Walmart runs. I send you today in the authority of Christ to go as sent ones, to go as people that have been called by God and filled by God's spirit to represent the kingdom of God to the earth, to go as loved ones. You're able to love others because God has deeply loved you. You're defined by the love of God. May the gifts of the Spirit be in operation in your life this week. May the blessing of God drip over you. May the favor of God open up doors for you. May life become brighter and better because of who God is in your life. And I pray it today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you guys.